Welcome to the Impact 360 Institute podcast, where our goal is to explore biblical worldview and servant leadership to equip you for everyday influence. Here's your host, author and director of cultural engagement, Jonathan Morrow. Does Jesus still matter in a world that rejects the Bible? Really excited to welcome you to the Impact 360 Institute podcast and my special guest today, Jay Warner Wallace, talking about his brand new book, Person of Interest, and a little bit about my friend Jim here. Just so you know, he's a Dateline featured cold case homicide detective. He's a popular national speaker. We've had him out here to Impact 360, of course, best-selling author, and he's relying on over two decades of investigative experience, which is so fun to see him bring that to his, his writing and his, and his books, which is fun. Wallace provides the tools needed to investigate the claims of Christianity and make a convincing case for the truth of the Christian worldview. And so, Jim, it's really exciting to have you on the podcast to talk about this brand new book. Well, I think we, I feel like we're, you know, we're, all, we're all friends, so it feels like this is just a, a conversation between friends. It's going to be fun. Absolutely. Well, you know, one of the things I love so much about how you approach writing and equipping is you've really broken some new ground and and really some innovation about how people think about kind of understanding evidence for faith and kind of your own story in that. But I know you've written Cold Case Christianity, but talk about why this book and, and kind of why now to kind of bring this one out. Well, I mean, a lot of what we're talking about, uh, this, we're at a time, I think, where young people, even Christians, young Christians, probably aren't learning much about the impact that Jesus had on history. And I think a case can be made for the for basically the historicity and deity of Jesus just from history, even if every New Testament was destroyed in some, like, just imagine some, you know, nefarious future where all the New Testaments are destroyed. And I, and I just felt like it was, I mean, this is part of my own journey anyway. I, when I wrote uh, Cold Case Christianity, I kind of only gave half the story. I, I focused on all the stuff, all the data points, all the evidence that I examined from inside the Gospels. But that was only part of what I looked at. And I had mentioned a little bit of this in Cold Case, but I really wanted to deep dive into all the stuff that's outside the New Testament that still points to the truth of uh, the Christian worldview, that points to the truth of the, of the story about Jesus. So I really just wanted to spend time focusing on, on that stuff, because I felt like uh, we're really at a point where um, you, you see it. The culture has moved so far. We're here in, in the West. The culture seems to be standing on the shoulders of a Christian worldview, yet completely ignorant of the fact that it's standing on the shoulders of a Christian worldview. So that's why I wanted to write the book. No, and that's so helpful because in many ways with Gen Z and today's teenagers and then Gen Alpha coming after them, we're going to have to kind of retell the story and kind of explain mm-hmm. kind of, hey, here's all the surrounding context. And we can't, you know, I know you know this because we do this, we, we, we teach audiences and students. You can't assume anymore that people have background knowledge when it comes to Jesus or the Bible or religion or faith or questions like that. But let's just start at the beginning for a second and just talk about um, kind of maybe the approach that you kind of bring to this book, but then also kind of maybe the framework, I guess. But then sure. let's start with that question of, you know, if, if we didn't have a New Testament, some people are like, do we even know anything about Jesus? How would we start to answer that question? Yeah, that's the fascinating thing. I sometimes, when I'm in front of a jury, will take a, a worst-case scenario, uh, especially like in closing arguments, where you're going to say, look, okay, if the defense's case was true, if everything the defense told you over the last 10 weeks was true, if their closing 
argument was true, you'd still have enough reason to believe this is our this is the man who did this crime. And we, we basically say, hey, even if we granted, even if we, so I'm kind of taking a worst case scenario here as well, because it's helpful for us to examine this evidence. Even if you look, I don't trust the Bible. I don't trust the Bible's reliable. Okay, how about this? Imagine a scenario in which every New Testament has been destroyed. So now you don't have a New Testament. What would you know about Jesus? Would you be able to reconstruct the story of Jesus? Would his impact on history be sufficient for us to go, wow, this is different. This is not just a regular guy. Uh, would, would you be able to demonstrate the historicity and deity of Jesus even if – now, look, I've already done the work of you know that we did in Cold Case Christianity where we looked at the New Testament. Here I'm saying to the defense attorney, even if the defense attorney is right, and you, you can't trust anything in the New – you know, the New Testaments have all been destroyed, you still would be stuck with this person we call Jesus of Nazareth. And his story would be so compelling that you'd have to consider the historicity and deity of Jesus. Now, the principle we're using here is the same approach we take in every nobody murder, where you have somebody who kills a business partner, kills a loved one, kills his wife, You know, says we had an argument last night and she ran off and I don't know where she went and she's never returned. Uh, and so they file a missing persons report. Now, meanwhile, of course, they've killed her and he's killed her and he's destroyed her body in some way so that we, in the end, 30 years later, still don't have a body. And, and nobody took a report as a murder. They took the report as a missing person. And they didn't even photograph the location. So now 30 years have gone by. They sold the house four times. It's been remodeled. There's no crime scene to return to. There's no body. There's not a single piece of evidence booked into the property room. How do we make a case like that in front of a jury? Well, we're going to tell the jury that if on the day she went missing, something explosively terrible happened, if he actually killed her, well, that's a bomb that had a fuse that burned for some time as the angers increased, as he prepared to get rid of her, as he prepared to do the murder, prepared to get a weapon or whatever it was. And then after that bomb exploded, there was shrapnel and debris everywhere, and he's going to give himself away in that debris. We will make a case for what happened on the day she went missing from just the fuse and fallout on this event. So if we don't have a New Testament, no, no evidence in the crime scene, no, nothing from a New Testament, you could still make a case for what happened in the first century based on the fuse and fallout of history. And that fuse and fallout, the fallout particularly, will be so uh, rich with the fingerprints of Jesus that you'll be able to reconstruct the story of Jesus even if you don't have a New Testament. And that's so helpful. And so thinking through what what would be like a, maybe a couple of those sources from history that you could point to that are outside of the New Testament that people could investigate and know, well, hey, Jesus is talked about and described. What would just a handful of those be? I know you go into more detail in the book. Yeah, yeah. No, no, of course. So so I think what you look at is you got to ask yourself two, two questions I'm looking for on the backside of the explosion. So, so timeline, basically what we're – and I told the publisher the idea for this book – I know they had no idea what I was talking about. I didn't give them as much details as I just gave you. I just said, I'm going to make a case for Jesus, the historicity and deity of Jesus using a timeline. <laughs> and they said, okay, great. <laughs> uh, they just trusted me for it, right? So, But I, I knew what, this is part of what this fuse and fallout is. It's, it's a timeline approach. And so when you're looking on the backside of the timeline after the appearance of Jesus, that's where you're going to find data because now Jesus has been in, uh, and appeared in time. And those people who – now what the two questions I'm asking then is, number one, what are the areas of human history that Jesus has in his followers, given the, uh, the worldview that he uh, initiated, uh, had a huge impact? So I'm looking for those areas in which 
Now, I could have picked a lot more, but I've looked in for those areas and where Jesus and his followers had uh, unparalleled impact. Number two, I'm only looking for those areas of impact in which his fingerprints are so clear, I can reconstruct the story clearly. Now, the reason why I say that is because there's other areas of impact, but they would be harder to reconstruct the story from just based on the nature of the areas of impact. So what I focused on in this book was art, literature, music, education, science, and world religions that are not Christian. It turns out those areas, there's like six there, that uh, I think are so deeply impacted by Jesus that no other figure in the history of figures, whether fictional or historical, have ever had this kind of impact. And from every one of those areas, in some unusual ways, you can reconstruct the story of Jesus. So, so let me give you an, an idea of what I mean by that, and then I'll show you why I didn't include some areas. So for example, in education, it turns out that modern universities, as you know them, actually even modern primary and secondary education as we know it, has been so deeply impacted by the worldview initiated by Jesus that more Christians have planted. The, the very first modern universities were planted by Christ followers, and more universities in the history of universities have been planted by Christ followers than every other group combined. Now, what's interesting is if you were to Google and just search on any metric the top 10 universities in the world today, you'll get a slightly different list depending on who's doing the listing. So I ended up with like 15 because these lists are slightly different. Well, all 15 were initiated and founded by Christ followers. And mm. because they love to venerate their old buildings on the campus because it makes them seem even more stately, they don't destroy those buildings, and they are still there. And from the surfaces of those buildings – and from the charters of the founding documents of the university, you will see on the buildings, for example, images of Jesus, scriptures of Jesus, etchings of Jesus. The story of Jesus can be reconstructed from the campuses of the top 15 universities. Now think about that for a second. Hmm. Not only has the impact of Christians and, and Jesus' worldview been so instrumental that it, it accounts for more universities than any other worldview, but the story of Jesus, you'd have to destroy, like the top 75 of the top 100 universities in the world today were founded by Christians. You'd have to destroy those campuses in order to erase the story of Jesus. That's how deeply he's – now, for example, though, let's say – you know, I also have a chapter on science to show how he's impacted the sciences. But I could have easily done one on care of humans, like medical care. No one has done more than Christians in the West, actually in the world, to, to care for those who are sick. And it comes out of a worldview in which the master was seen to care for those who are sick. And so his followers end up doing the same thing. They were the first to you know, deal with those who were lepers and other areas. That, you know, they watched what their master did, and they did the same thing. But it turns out that those buildings they turn over much faster because the technology of medicine changes. And so if you go to the most ancient you know, uh, uh, medical facilities, they won't have the initial buildings there anymore. Now, those initial buildings certainly were replete with images of Jesus, but you couldn't go there today to find them the way you can in universities because the building and the technology change so quickly, right? So, so I'm looking for two things, deep impact and can you reconstruct the story of Jesus from, the, uh, from that, that area of human culture? That's so really fascinating to think about because just you see all the reverberations of everything and what what it would take to 
unexplain, if you will, the life of this person, Jesus of Nazareth, and everything that he impacted. And so I love how you've kind of illuminated that in this book. Um, One of the things that's fascinating and that I really, really was excited to see you cover was kind of talking even a little culturally about the unique point in history at which point this Jesus of Nazareth showed up. Like, talk about why that's unique and why that's important to investigating this question. Yeah, well, very often in cases, we'll do what I call red zoning, where you're saying, okay, given the suspect we're looking at, and given the conditions of the victim and the timing, there's going to be certain preconditions that have to be met before any crime can occur. So if I'm going to use an unusual weapon, well, I'm going to either have to craft that weapon or go out and purchase that weapon or get access to that weapon. If I'm going to destroy her body using a certain kinds of technology, I'm going to have to go out and get that technology. It's got to be available. I've got to have access to it. In other words, certain preconditions have to be in place. If I was to put them on a timeline, I would actually be able to say, well, he can't do this before he does this. And he can't do this before he does that. And I can lock on the timeline when these things are available. Then I also are going to have certain deadlines I'm working against. You know, if I know that she's going to leave the country, I'm going to have to do this to her before she leaves the country. And if she's got a ticket that's for April 1st, well, now I know I got a deadline. The deadline's April 1st. So, so you can lock in the preconditions and the deadlines, and you'll find then a window of opportunity in the timeline in which this particular suspect, because he accounts for his preconditions, and this particular victim, she accounts for the deadlines, well, now you know this red zone seems to fit him. In other words, the opportunity to do the crime is right here, and guess where the crime occurs? Right there. Well, that's because he's the one who did it. Well, the same kind of thing can be done with Jesus. There are certain preconditions that are being met culturally. There are certain preconditions that are being met prophetically from the Jewish uh, prophecies in the Old Testament. There are certain even preconditions that are being met based on the history of ancient people groups who are worshiping mythologies in which they all have very common expectations of what God would be like. And if you wanted to come when all of those mythologies are pretty much active, you'd have to come within a certain window because a lot of those mythologies do not continue far into the uh, common era, into A.D., right? So, so again, you can overlap these different windows of opportunity, these different red zones, and you end up, and I try to show this in the book, given the three parts of the fuse that I'm tracing, cultural, prophetic, and spiritual, uh, and then this is why we have over 400 illustrations in the book, right? Because this is something that's so visual. Yeah, you have to kind of see it. Yeah, you have to kind of see it because the red zones are like a visual red zone in the timeline. So I'm trying to explain in, in words what you have to really see. But the idea here, you'll see on the on the actual timeline that the opportunity for Jesus to come and have the kind of impact, uh, given now you've got roads in which Paul can walk, you've got the technology in which Paul can write, You've got the Etruscan alphabet, and you've got uh, Greek-spoken language. You've got all of these opportunities for information to be um, transferred in a way that was not available just a few centuries earlier because of the Roman Empire. And then you have a 200-year period of peace in the Pax Romana in which you had the security to, to walk those roads. And not only that, you had an infrastructure where now funds were being redistributed to the infrastructure, and they were building more roads, more secure roads, tunnels and bridges and all kinds of infrastructure. The postal system under the Romans, for example, was even better than the postal system under the Persians. And they had a pretty good postal service. So, so you have all of these things aligning and opening up a window that runs from about 29 B.C. to about 70 A.D., and that, of course, is you know it's about a hundred year period of time, and in the middle of that, 
the middle third is the life of Jesus. And then what's interesting about it is that I discovered that years ago, not by saying, well, what can I develop around Jesus? But just by taking those three strands and just see what it does, where does the window fall? And you'll see it in the book. I mean, it's, it's, it's remarkable. If you didn't know anything about Jesus of Nazareth, you'd know something was going to happen in that time frame. And sure enough, that's where Jesus arrives. Yeah, and that's so important. So I, I hope as people are listening, and again, I want to encourage them to get the book. We're talking to Jay Warner Wallace about his brand new book, Person of Interest, Why Jesus Still Matters in a World That Rejects the Bible. It's beautifully illustrated. There's tons of great drawings and illustrations that really help this evidence and context come to life, this timeline approach that you're talking about. So and it's so helpful. Um, but sometimes we and this is something that we need to really help and keep putting before the next generation, but also be reminded of ourselves, is sometimes we can kind of get used to evidence, but what I, just if you grow up with it or different things like that, but it's remarkable when you slow down and map it out, just how distinct, I mean, even down to something that you mentioned in there where it's like, you know, Rome, you know, the Roman Empire had just enough religious tolerance, right? So, so something like Jesus, that message could, could begin to be spread or, or something like that. And so there's just so many cool factors. One thing you kind of overviewed, you kind of skipped over that I want to make sure I come back to, you know, as we're heading into the, the Advent season, the Christmas season, thinking about the coming of Jesus, you know, talk about kind of the, the prophecies around the Messiah and, and how we know from prophecy, like what has to match up there? And, and you introduced this distinction I want you to unpack around clear prophecies and cloaked prophecies. Maybe just kind of unpack that. I know sometimes prophetic things can get um, not always as clear for people. So talk about the importance of that when it comes to the person of Jesus. Yeah, I, I'll tell you, I wrote this chapter because when I was first examining the evidence for Jesus, this is one of those areas that when I first heard about it, and a lot of people will make a case for Jesus as the Messiah just based on Jewish prophecy. And let's face it, the New Testament authors, uh, you know, over 50 times are going to refer to Old Testament prophecy. If it's good enough for them, it should be good enough for us, right? But but I, let, I would read it as a, as a skeptic, and I was like underwhelmed. Uh, I'll be honest, I was kind of sarcastic about it. I, I didn't feel like, I was not that impressed. And here's why I say that. People would, I remember being in a church service, and this guy was a speaking, uh, kind of a guest speaker, and he was talking about prophecy, and he would he would mention a few, and then he would put them on the screen a little bit, just like the addresses of these prophecies. So I, you know, I had a Bible by that time. So I would, you know, try to find it as quick as I can, you know, find the the, the page and find <laughs> it's the like, verse. Where is, and, where is yeah, Micah? <laughs> yeah, I'm not even sure where some of this was. Yeah, I, one of the first things I did was memorize book orders so I could find things faster. But so, so yeah, I'm, I'm digging through these Old Testament prophecies, mentioning them. And I'm reading along. Now, of course, I'm reading in a slightly different translation than he had on the screen. But I'm like going, this does not... This does not seem as obvious as he's making it sound. Like he, he seemed like he was overselling. This is my, you know, skeptical view as a non-Christian. And I was listening to him say that, that I would read that verse in the context of the Old Testament passage and think to myself, I wasn't even sure. I wasn't even convinced that this author was even talking about a Messiah. This seemed like David's just talking about David, or just you know, like I didn't see that. I, again, I to me it was not clear. Now, it took me a while to kind of understand the difference. And so what I tried to do in the book is show the difference between clear and cloaked and why that's still good evidence. And, and I had somebody call me 
Jonathan, from a mutual friend of ours who's got a rather large uh, public uh, Christian ministry, and one of his employees was deconstructing away from Christianity mm-hmm. and called me to say that one of the reasons why, and, and this person set him up so he could call me, I said, hey, call Jim Wallace, uh, because he was saying that one of the biggest problems he had was with the way that the New Testament authors were using these these verses, using these prophecies. He thought they were taking, he was just, they were manipulating the prophecies, taking them out of context, making them try to suit their purposes, blah, blah, blah. This is what he was saying. It was giving him trouble. So this distinction at crime scenes might be helpful. And here's how it goes. Uh, if you've got a fingerprint or DNA, right now our DNA databases are getting better and better every day. Um, so some of this DNA, you can actually pull it out of a crime scene and it leads you to a suspect, either through ancestry relationships or if you're in a DNA database, sometimes fingerprints. If your database is big enough, a fingerprint can lead you to a suspect directly. It's very clear because that one person possesses that fingerprint. You put it to the database. Oh, that's going to be Joe Smith. He lives over on Main Street. We can go knock on his door. So Joe Smith is identified in advance from the onset by clear evidence like DNA, like fingerprints. Uh, maybe he drops his ID. <laughs> you know, believe it or not, I've had a few of those where somebody will drop their ID at a crime. Wow. And they're like going, okay, I think I know where to look for this guy. Okay, so that's clear evidence. But let's say, for example, at the same crime scene, I've got a button or I've got a piece of torn shirt or something is there that I'm not quite sure what to make of it. I'm not even sure if it's evidence of the crime. For all I know, this was laying at the crime scene before the thing ever happened. It could just be some artifact that happens to be in the vicinity. And I, don't, I can't match it to the victim's shirt. Is it from the victim? I don't know. But if I go meet Joe Smith and I knock on his door and he's got a shirt with a tear in it or he's got a button missing and this matches – well, now that piece of evidence that seemed kind of cloaked at the, at the crime scene because I wasn't even sure it was evidence. Well, now I know it's evidence because it matches the shirt of the suspect in hindsight. Clear evidence will point from the onset. Cloaked evidence will make a match in hindsight. And this is the kind of evidence, by the way, we would not tell the investigators, oh, don't bother collecting that button. No, we would say collect the button. I mean, I get it. It's not as clear as a fingerprint, but it's going to be valuable later. So what we see in the New Testament are people who are using both clear and cloaked evidence. That's fair. We do that in every crime scene. You should be allowed to do that here as well. This makes perfect sense. But understanding the difference, when I make a case for anything from prophecy for Jesus, I'm going to separate out clear from cloaked. And just for sake of argument, again, worst case scenario, I'll say, you know what? Okay, for sake of argument, I'll just toss out all of the cloaked. So what I did in this chapter was make a list of all of the prophecies. And I did it in a way that I don't think I've seen many other people do, which is I didn't do it, I didn't organize them by event. In other words, like I hear the prophecies about the birth of the Messiah, hear the prophecies about the death of the Messiah. Instead, I organized them by when they were uttered. When does the prophecy occur in history? And the reason why I did that was because I knew that there was a reason why Jesus came when he did. And if it's from prophecy, well, I'll tell you, you have to answer the five questions before you can answer the who question. And in the investigation, you have to answer the what, how, when, why, where questions first, because that'll point to a who. When, why, how, where, and what. Those are the questions that point to the who. Well, it turns out, if you look at the history of when these prophecies, you don't have those five questions answered until you get to that intertestamental period where you have between the Old and the New Testament. Now you have enough data that you should be able to recognize the who. You even have Daniel telling you 
that the Messiah will come between the edict to restore the Jerusalem and, and the destruction of the temple. Well, that's a very tight frame of about 500 years there you can put on that red zone. So you have good data by the time you get to the appearance of Jesus. I, mean, I just think that when we make this case for those around us, if we aren't careful and we make everything sound like it's clear evidence, then you get people who will say, well, I, I don't think this is very clear, and therefore I don't believe it's true, and they end up trying to deconstruct over an issue that really, if you'd have separated clear from cloaked evidence, they would have seen how that prophecy is still legitimate. Yeah, and that's so helpful. So just by way of review, clear looks forward from that event in history toward something, and then the cloaked looks back at it in hindsight. That's right. And so, and if you just removed all of the cloaked evidence and only considered the clear, and the other principle I try to introduce in that chapter is the difference between reliable informants and just regular informants. And a reliable informant is somebody who, if he told us, hey, there's going to be a burglary on Thursday, and sure enough, there's a burglary on Thursday, well, the next time he says, I anticipate a burglary on Saturday, you know he's been reliable for you. He's told you one successful uh, prediction, right, one successful piece of information. So when you see that a prophet is successfully predicting historical events, I think he's in a slightly different category. Again, they're all God's prophets, but I'm, I mean, as if I was going to be the skeptic worst-case scenario again, I would say, well, if all I did was listen to the reliable prophets, those who predicted things about history that came true, and I've got a list of those in the book, and all I did was listen to their clear evidence and, for, just for sake of argument, toss out the cloaked, you'd still have enough reason to believe that Jesus is the Messiah. And, and that's pretty awesome. So just, just for sake of illustration, what's one of those clear evidences that you could point to to give somebody an illustration of the kind of thing that you're talking about that would be involved in that case? And I know you go into several of them in the chapter that deals with that, but what's maybe one of them that you think would be a, a real clear one to kind of talk about just for a second? Yes, you're right. There are some that are more clear than others, and good examples of this. And this is one of the ones that, when you know, back in the day when I was sitting listening to speakers talk about these kinds of things, um, some seem like they're far more clear. I'll just give you one, like from Isaiah twenty, uh, Isaiah two, rather, verse four. And I'm going to quote it to you from the English Standard Version. It says that uh, predicting again, this is Isaiah predicting that the Savior would lead every nation and usher in eternal peace. It says that he shall judge between the nations, and he shall decide disputes for many peoples, and they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. Now, this is an interesting passage. It seems to me relatively unambiguous. Somebody who's going to be in a position where they can actually judge between nations. And it's a pretty straightforward um, description of what God is going to do in the future. As a matter of fact, this is even uh, accepted as messianic prophecy by Jewish believers. Now, that's one of the things I wanted to do, is to look and say, hey, today, like, what uh, prophecies are accepted by Jews? because those are the hardest to sell. Most of these folks would say that Jesus is not the Messiah, but they do accept some Old Testament passages as um, messianic. And so that's, I think, one of those areas where uh, you can say this is a clear prophecy. I would put that in the clear prophecy list. Let's put it that way. And now, again, so how much of a case can you build for the specificity of Jesus of Nazareth from just the clear prophecies? Now, I'll give you an example of the contrary, of one that's more cloaked, okay? 
Because Isaiah did more than just say that. He also said that the Savior would be would kind of be beaten on his back. He would have his beard pulled. He would be a spat on, right? And this is from the prophecy in Isaiah 50, verses 6 to 7. Again, I'm going to quote to you from the ESV. Uh, I gave my back to those who strike and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting, but the Lord God helps me. Therefore, I have not been disgraced. Therefore, I have set my face like a flint, and I know that I shall not be put to shame. Now, it turns out if you were to research that passage, you're going to find that Jewish believers do not accept it as messianic. And I can understand why. It seems like if you're reading it in a straightforward way, it seems to be almost a better description of Isaiah offering a description about himself, you know, not the future Messiah. Like, why, if you were reading this back in the day, would you have stopped and said, oh, now here, my Isaiah is speaking about the Messiah? There's the problem, I think, right? That's a cloaked piece of evidence. And that's the difference, I think, between what's clear and what's cloaked. And what I try to do is make a list of all of the clear and then shrink that down to just the clear from reliable informants who also happen to make prophecies about uh, history that we can show actually occurred, well, now you've got a really tight group of prophecies. And you'll see when you see that list, which is illustrated in the book, that this is really descriptive of Jesus of Nazareth uh, in a way that, especially when you look at the Daniel prophecies uh, related to the time frame in which he is to show up, it's mind-boggling. As a matter of fact, I don't usually work with percentages, right? Like, have you probably heard it said before? Like, well, somebody will say, what are the odds that one man would ever fulfill these 300 and some odd prophecies? And they'll kind of work statistically down from how many men have ever lived and blah, blah, blah. Okay, I get that. But, but that, to me, is – statistics are, 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 can be manipulated. I think most people sense that statistics can be manipulated in some way. So I take a much more commonsensical approach. And so what I tried to do, I did it in the book the same way I would do it in front of a jury. If, if you knew that the suspect had these certain criteria had to be met, and I had a, a chart on the wall of every human who ever lived, and we just started by reducing out the ones who don't meet the criteria the suspect needs to meet, you're going to end up with one guy on planet Earth who could be our suspect if you're done your job. And the same thing could be said here. If you start off with everyone in some of the simplest, earliest prophecies about the Messiah, would it be like something as simple as the Messiah is born of a woman? Okay, well, that doesn't eliminate anybody. Everyone's still standing. But if you said, okay, he's also going to be a male. Well, now about half the population has to sit down. He's also going to be a descendant of David. Well, how many of those people are out there? A bunch more are going to have to sit down. He's also going to be able to perform miracles. Well, how many descendants of David performed miracles, and he's got to appear at that right time frame that Daniel mentions, and he's going to have to be uniquely executed and buried in a way that matches. Do you see what's happening here? Mm-hmm. If the more you add to the detailed description of the Messiah who's to come, the more people in the history of the people have to sit down until you finally get one guy standing. And that's, I think, the, the way we would put it in front of a jury. And if you see this in the diagrams, you go, okay, yeah, I can see why prophecy is. Now, I was somebody, uh, you know, before I was doing a lot of jury trials, I was somebody who would have, you would have had a hard time impressing me with Jewish prophecy. But as I look at it and, and make these distinctions, put it in the timeline, separate clear from cloaked, identify the uh, reliable informants, and then make the case backwards, 
it's pretty compelling. Mm-hmm. And this was so fun to see all that in there, right? Because I mean, there's some people who who kind of are tem- they tend to accept the authority of the Bible for whatever reason, and 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 certain kinds of ways of approaching the Bible will be helpful, and maybe they won't even ask certain questions that they'll just kind of assume those. But then other people who are like, wait a second, hold on, <laughs> you know, like you sitting in the in the church with the Bible going, that's not what I see. I don't see this, Jesus. And so what I love about the approach that you've taken in this book, Person of Interest, is that you're saying you, you do kind of give the worst case scenario of, okay, even if you grant all of these things, make all your distinctions and clarify all your assumptions, you still have to deal with Jesus and he still matters. And you know, yes. I love that. Yeah. And that's, and I think this is why I, I, I resonate with young people. I, I'm taking like the worst case scenarios here because I don't reject what the Bible te- teaches me about Jesus. I, I'm just taking as a a way of making an argument. I'm, I'm saying, hey, just as for the sake of argument, let's let's assume the worst in all of these situations. Well, you'd still be stuck if you assumed the worst and you said, I'm never going to to. I don't want to even acknowledge the existence of New Testaments. You still are stuck with mm-hmm. Jesus. And and one of the reasons why I think it's powerful, Jonathan, is because think about this in the sense of of how do we explain this kind of impact? Uh, if if you can, and I've had skeptics online already. Say, well, look, uh, you're just making an argument from popularity. Now, there's lots of popular people in the history of people. Now, I'm not making a, and again, don't put the cart before the horse. Is Jesus, are we calling him God because he was popular, or are we calling him popular because he's God? Which, which is the case? Mm-hmm. Now, if, if you're thinking he's just a fictional character, and a lot of the skeptics I know would say that's the case, he's just a recreated mythology. Okay, can you give me an example in the history of fiction? and the history of fictional characters in which anyone has not only had the impact of Jesus, but whose thinking has been formative to art, literature, music, education, science, and world religions. You, you're not, that's, that's not my burden. If you think there's another fictional character who could, who's had that kind of impact, tell me who it is. And if there is no other fictional character who could have that kind of impact on the things that matter most. You know, there's a catalyst. There's seven reasons why the Christian worldview, for example, ignites the sciences. There's a reason why science does not blow up before Jesus, and it blows up after Jesus. It's because Jesus is part of the catalyst to all of this. Now, you tell me who the other fictional character, if you think he's a fictional character, and if you can't find another fictional character who does this, there's good reason to believe that Jesus is something more than a fictional character. But guess what? You're going to have a hard time finding a mortal human who's had this kind of impact. If you think there is, I've got a list in the last chapter of the book of every mortal human who was important in the first century. I've also got a list of all the mortal humans who have led nations globally. None of these folks had this impact on on history, and none of them had an impact on those five things that most atheists like me would say were the most important things, art, music, literature, education, and science. Yet this guy, Jesus, did. And if you can't find another mortal example of this, there's a good reason to believe that Jesus is something more than immortal. And that's the whole point, is the kind of impact that Jesus had, and you'll see it illustrated in the book, I think is best explained by his real existence and his identity as God incarnate. If, if God was to enter into his creation, this is the kind of ripple effect I would expect. Absolutely, because, I mean, what's so cool about this is it brings so many different threads and lines of evidence really into this cumulative case, this contextual case that they weave together to reinforce one another, and it's objectively 
true. Like you, you can argue for the each individual, but then they all fit together into this tight pattern that has to be explained. And so that's, that's, right. what, that's what I love about it. Yeah, there's so much good stuff in this book. I'm talking to Jay Warner Wallace, talking about his brand new book, Person of Interest, about who this Jesus is and his impact on history. So many different directions we could go. Let's do a, a, kind of a speed round on one or two uh, common objections, sure. and we'll kind of wrap up with kind of why why this really ultimately matters, especially for this generation. But, you know, some people are like, well, oh, the prophecies and whatnot. Well, isn't Jesus just a copycat Savior or just a copycat? There was other religious figures. Um, so how do we know that Jesus was the, the right one or that wasn't invented after the fact? How would you kind of quickly respond to, to an objection like that? Okay, a couple of things. Are there similarities between Jesus and other mythologies uh, that exist, uh, other deities that have come out of the minds of humans uh, prior to the existence of Jesus? Absolutely there are. And I don't think this is an evidence against Jesus. This is an evidence for Jesus. Because if you were to look at all of those similarities, and we did this, we we actually looked at a bunch of ancient mythologies and tried to figure out, okay, so what do they have in common? What do all the ancient mythologies have in common? I've, I've, I've identified 15 commonalities. I think you could have done less. You could have done ten, because it would have had you know been stronger comparisons. But or you could have done more, and there would have been some weaker ones in there. But the point is, I identify fifteen, and those fifteen, it turns out, are very general. If you were to compare them specifically, you know, in mythology to mythology, you'll see that although each mythology, for example, the the, the god will appear miraculously in some way supernaturally, the way the god appears is very different from mythology to mythology. But you could say, well, yeah, you know, there's another dime and rising Savior out there who comes into the world through unnatural means, like Jesus does, well, yeah, but he pops out of the side of a mountain, or he's born out of the hip of another god. I mean, this is very different than Jesus of Nazareth. But what's interesting is those are common expectations of people who are thinking about God. As a matter of fact, if you were thinking about God even today and had no understanding of any scriptures, you would also come along with those 15 common expectations of God. So why would you be surprised, then, that Jesus meets? We've all been designed in the image of God. All humans, whether we're believers or not, and by the way, most of us do believe. This is true statistically. This is also true by way of survey. This is true by way of study. Children are born with belief as their default position. It's not atheism. That's not the default position. Some form of theism is the default position of children based on a number of studies that have been done in the last 10 years. So it turns out that most of us are thinking about God in some way. And then Jesus comes, and he is, uh, by the way, none of those mythologies possess more than about 10 of the commonalities, some as few as six. But Jesus comes and possesses all 15 God meets the expectations of the ancients, just like Paul said in Mars Hill, you people are very religious, but I'm here to show you now what you've imagined and your poets have written about. I'm here to show you what, based on what we saw with our own eyes. He's basically making the claim that I'm making, he's just making it 2,000 years ago, that people think about God, but then when he arrives, he meets your expectations. Now, why would that be the case? Because when people, when the expector meets the expectations of the expected, you get a better result. And this is true both for the Jews, ought to. Now, again, some people will never bend their knee. That's not because he's not meeting expectations. That's because you refuse to even acknowledge your own expectations because you don't want anyone to be God other than you. So I, that still happens. Uh, that was happening then and well, I'm sure. But my point is there's a reason why the story of Jesus takes off. And by the way, if you think that Jews in antiquity, writing the New Testament, 
trying to impress other Jews with the idea that Jesus is the Jewish Messiah by doing the one thing that Jews have been warned not to do, which is to cobble together the gods of other cultures. If you think, I'm going to convince Jews by cobbling together the, the mythologies of pagans to create the Jewish Messiah, good luck with that. Then that's, that's a ridiculous claim, especially when one of the most stringent historic prohibitions against the Jews from God, from Yahweh, was that there will be no other God before me. And so if you're going to like say, well, yeah, he's the Messiah because he resembles the pagan gods, you're trying to convince a Jewish population first. That, to me, is just a ludicrous approach to begin with. Absolutely. And so that's so helpful. And so what I really appreciate about how you walk through, and again, this beautifully illustrated book with tons of visualizations of all of these different claims or objections or pieces of evidence or timelines, it just makes it really clear to think through what you're talking about and really helps people wrestle with actual evidence and get past the slogans and sound bites, which tend to shut people down or, oh, that sounds intimidating. I guess there may not be an answer to that. And then and they never engage it. So I, I, I love that. You know, um, your, your postscript, you, you call it the unlikeliest of suspects. Talk about why you kind of put it in that category and maybe kind of round out our conversation by just kind of zeroing in on, on why, why this matters so much. Yeah, I would have said as a non-believer, because uh, my background was in the arts before I became a detective, um, you know, I was also raised in that Star Trek generation who thought that eventually, you know, whatever question you have about the future, whatever mystery you think needs to be unlocked, you don't need to jump to God to get the unlock. You, you basically have to just have to wait for science to do its work, because I was always convinced that science would eventually solve all of our problems, cure every disease, um, you know, and, and answer every question. So that was where my starting point was. So as an atheist, I would have said that it was the arts, because I have a bachelor's degree in design and a master's in architecture. I would have said it was literature, music. Uh, I would have said education and science. Those are the things that I would have said are really what make a good life, uh, what make a good culture. An advanced culture will celebrate those things and advance those causes, and uh, and that's how you would define human success and human thriving. Well, it turns out that all five of those things are, as we know them today, utterly dependent on a Christian worldview, utterly dependent on the existence of Jesus, the teaching of Jesus, and the how the Jesus followers then brought these things into play in reality. And, and, and if, if you don't think that's the case, it's because you really just don't know the history of those five areas of human culture. And that's what we're trying to do in a book like this, is to say, hey, do you have any idea how inspiring the character of Jesus has been to literature? How much great literature, how there's even Jesus figures in fiction? that dominate fiction. Are you even aware of how much Jesus has been sung about historically and how Jesus' followers took a musical theistic worldview because Christianity is a singing theism and, and, and shaped music, the history of music, even the creation of instruments, harmonies, musical notation, uh, major scales, minor scales. Do you realize that we're here where we are today? Because Do you realize that of all the people who have sung the most popular pop artists, rap artists, country artists, whatever they are in the last 100 years, all but two I can find on the databases, has sung a song about Jesus. This can't be said of any other historical figure. No one's been written about more than Jesus of Nazareth. You can reconstruct the story of Jesus from literature, non-Christian literature. You can reconstruct the story of Jesus from music, from art. We can go episode by episode of the, of the Gospels and reconstruct them from just art before the Dark Ages. 
So it's just, it's amazing the impact that Jesus has had on education. It's just the, the most uh, robust reconstruction of the Jesus story that you can do is not from the church fathers, not from literature, not from music or art, and not even from the history of education. It's from the history of science, because it turns out that every significant science father of all the major scientific disciplines was a Christ follower, and he wrote, or she wrote, about Jesus in those personal journals. From the personal journals of the science fathers, you can reconstruct more than you can from the journals of the church fathers. That is the impact that Jesus has had on these different areas of culture. And then you got to ask yourself the question, well, why would that be the case? You know, it turns out that Jesus does not matter because those things are important. Those things are important because Jesus matters. And it turns out he is the foundation for everything. And that's what I'm hoping that the young people, uh, let's face it, I wasn't taught that. Uh, of course, I wasn't raised in the church. But I suspect if even if you were raised in the church, that a book like this would not be all that remarkable because you've already read this a thousand times. But the fact that we're writing something now that feels like, well, I'd never thought of it that way. Well, there's the problem, is that we haven't been thinking about it this way when in fact this is the reality. That's so good. It's so good, and I and I love I love the way you've laid this out in just this very unique approach to bringing all these lines of evidence together and why it matters. Um, it's so compelling, and I encourage if you're listening to this podcast, I encourage you to grab a copy of this book, "Person of Interest" by Jay Warner Wallace. We'll have links on our site uh, pointing to this. And you know, if you're listening to this and and you want. Uh, not only these kind of questions or this kind of evidence, I want to encourage you to check out just impact360.org. We do student training with summer experiences, immersion, propel, our nine-month gap year, our fellows experience. Uh, we have a, a two-year master's experience where we explore these things. But we want to come alongside you and help the next generation discover um, how Jesus changes everything. That's why I love this book so much. So, so Jim, thanks so much for, for writing this. Thank you for being a friend of ours here at Impact 360. Thank you for all the hours um, in the illustrations and the time exploring this question and making it so accessible for everyone to investigate. Well, I'll just tell you that uh, you're in a great place. The work you're doing there is so important because we can write a book, but it's really in the in that gap year program, for example, where you have a whole year to interact in relationship with students. Nothing is more powerful than that. Um, you can you know you can do a week. You guys do a week, but that gap year program you have, where these kinds of conversations are occurring on a daily basis, that is the life changing stuff. So all we're doing is providing data, but it's in the context of that program where where life are changed. So, so I'm glad to be any small connection with you guys. Appreciate you having me. Absolutely. And we'll have links to, um, all of his resources, uh, jwarnerwallace.com and we'll have links to the book as well. So again, Jim, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. For more information about our on-campus worldview and leadership experiences for students and our accessible online courses like Explore Truth and Explore the Resurrection, visit impact360.org. Impact 360 Institute. Know. Be. Live. Live.